we are continuing in our series titled The Servant King, and our scripture reading is Mark 12, verses 35 to 44, if you want to join me there. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng healed, heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have, been, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich, rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay, good morning. This is usually where I'd introduce myself, but kind of did that a minute ago. So you know me, I'm just going to move right in. Uh, not really, I'm Houston, of course, pastor of preaching and teaching at Eastside Church. Guys, I'm really excited to be here with you today. Um, Nate was telling me, last time I was here, uh, I, I filled in for Nate and preached a sermon that I know he was excited to preach, and then because of the way it turned out, I got this passage, which he was also excited to preach, and so I'm kind of just reaping the benefits of Nate's <laughs> scheduling right now. So I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be talking about this section today. Um, so recently, uh, my wife and I saw the musical Hamilton. Have, have you guys seen this? Yes? A few of you, okay, good. This is not gonna, there's a lot of Hamilton today, so it's not going to fall flat. Uh, and if you don't understand afterwards, find someone who does and ask them to translate. But anyways, so we just saw Hamilton recently, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and, and very fun musical, hip-hop musical about the founding of America through the lens of Alexander Hamilton. It's, it's everything you could imagine and more. It's so good. Uh, and so throughout the musical... There are these comparisons between uh, King George and George Washington. It's kind of a theme running throughout the musical that they're comparing these two guys and seeing what their rule is like and then seeing what their uh, kingdom is like, what their nation is like. And uh, there's this wonderful song very early on where King George, he appeals to the colonies to stay submissive to him, and it's all in the form of this kind of like Beatles-esque love song, this like British pop, it's classic, very classic. And there's a wonderful line in there where he says this, when you're gone, I'll go mad, so don't throw away this thing we had, because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. It's buck wild. It's so, but it's so funny, right? And if you've seen the Disney Plus, 
You know, you can imagine Jonathan Groff with, like, the spittle on his face. If you know what I'm talking about, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Anyways, so there's this passionate, like, love song, and he says at the end, I'll kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. And the point is that this is crazy. The point is, okay, King George, this is what he's about. This is his kingdom. He's off the rails. And we contrast that with George Washington, who at one point in the play yields his power. He steps down and he doesn't run for president again. And he sings a very beautiful song uh, about teaching people how to say goodbye. And so if you are a student of history, a lover of history, you know that George Washington's yielding of power was one of the most peaceful transitions of power in the history of the world. And uh, it's a lot of what set up America to be the nation that it is today. And this brings us to our passage, because it's this idea that we see from the play that uh, not all leaders are created equal. And, and we see this in history, too. Not all leaders are equal. And that the differences in leaders, the different qualities in leaders, determines the kind of nation that we live in. And the Bible would use slightly different terminology to describe this. They, the Bible would say something to the effect of, the kind of king you have determines the kind of kingdom you live in. And so what we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus is compared to David, Israel's greatest king, and that he is greater than David. And because he is greater than David, his kingdom is greater than any kingdom throughout history. And so what we're going to see is that this passage is good news. It's very good news. And it's not just good news, but it's an invitation. The good news is that Jesus is a better king than David and that his kingdom is better than David's. And the invitation is that you too can join that kingdom. And so we'll see three things. We'll see that Jesus is a better David, that Jesus is a better kingdom, and we're going to see how we, too, can experience that kingdom. So again, Jesus is better David. His kingdom is better. And we're going to see how we can experience it now. So would you pray with me? Lord, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for all that you give us. Uh, I thank you for this group that is here this morning. All of us who made it out of bed on Day of Savings Day. Um, <laughs> I can feel just to myself, Lord, just... Uh, a weariness from lack of sleep, and uh, Lord, I think that as we consider what it means that you, King Jesus, are a greater king and that your kingdom is greater, I can't help but think about uh, the hope that we have because your kingdom's coming. I pray that as we read more about you and your kingdom, that it would stir our hearts to worshiping you and to following you, Lord. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be glorifying to you, Lord, our God and our Redeemer. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, first thing, let's see, what does it mean that Jesus is a better David? So at first blush, if you look at our passage today, Mark 12, 35 and on, it, it looks like at first blush that Jesus is saying that the Christ is not the son of David. And this is confusing for us, because if we're paying attention throughout the book of Mark, we're seeing that Mark is, in fact, telling us that the Christ is the son of David. So then what is Jesus doing here? This is confusing. What is Jesus doing? See, we know from Mark 10, for example, 
there's a man who is blind. He hears that Jesus has come by, and he cries out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus heals him. He says, your faith has made you well. He, he's affirming this guy. He's saying, you're right to call me Son of David. And so what in the world does it mean when Jesus says this in our passage today? Well, what we need to see is that Jesus is not challenging the belief that the Messiah, that the Christ, is the son of David. He's challenging the, the presuppositions that go along with that belief. In other words, Jesus is comparing himself to David, but what he's saying is that he is greater than David. So let's look at verses 36 and 37 to see what that means. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And so what Jesus is saying here is essentially, okay, you hear these guys talk about Christ, the Christ, as the son of David. But you think that that means he'll be less than David. And this is not the case. This is not what David himself says. Because the, the idea here is that a son is not greater than the father. The idea is that descendancy means in some sense subordination. Right? And, and what Jesus is saying is that doesn't fit the model. Because David himself calls his descendant Lord. Which means superior. And so... What Jesus wants these people to see is what they're looking for is not so much wrong, but inadequate. See, they're looking for a son of David in the sense that they're looking for someone to carry out what David did. And Jesus wasn't here to, to finish David's work. He was here to blow David out of the water. And so the question is, how then? How is Jesus superior? What we see from this section is that Jesus quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 110. So if you have your Bibles, look at that psalm with me. Psalm 110, this is a psalm about exalting the king. This uh, historically was used uh, uh, throughout Jewish history in coronations. So as you're crowning the king, you would be reading Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the picture here is that we are, as we're crowning the king, we're we're asking the Lord to bless him. And Jesus, he asks a million dollar question. He says, how is it then that David the greatest king in Israel's history. How is it that he looks forward to the Christ and calls him Lord? How is it that this man is greater than David? And the answer is that David recognizes that the Christ is going to be greater in two ways. He's going to be greater in quality and in type. Here's what I mean by that. First, Jesus is greater than David in quality. This is so important. David, again, greatest king in Old Testament history. And throughout the Old Testament, there are promises over and over 
that there is another king coming who will be like David. And throughout Jewish history, people have seen this as good news. This is good news because David was so good that it's good news that there's another one like him coming. Because when they think about David, they think about a man who united Israel. They think about a man who was moral and upright. They think about a man who brought prosperity to their country. But when we read the story, what we see is all of those things, yes. But we also see a lot of shortcomings. Yes, David united Israel, but man, if you follow his family, you see that it was such a wreck that his own children started the process of tearing the nation apart. And, and yes, David was moral and righteous, sort of. As if you remember, there's a, there's a pretty wild story about a woman named Bathsheba. He sees her bathing, he forces himself on her, he gets her pregnant, then he kills her husband. This is nuts. You see what I'm getting at here? The Old Testament hails David as the greatest king Israel ever had. And he was. And yet, he was still this painfully broken and sinful man. So the first hope in this passage is that Jesus is a greater quality king than David. Jesus is going to do greater things than David ever did, and he won't have these black marks on his history. He won't be sinful and corrupt like David was. That's the first hope. Jesus is a greater quality than David, but he's also a greater type. And when we look at Psalm 110, we see what that means. Look at uh, verse 4 with me, Psalm 110. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this character, Melchizedek, has got a wild name, but uh, is a very significant character. He shows up one time in the whole of the Old Testament narrative. One time in the book of Genesis. And what we see is this scene where Abraham, father of the Israelite people, he has this battle, and he's successful, and he comes across this man, Melchizedek, and the only thing we know about him is that he is both a king and a priest of our God. And this is really significant, because when we read through the Old Testament law, we see that these offices of king and priest are separate. And in fact, they must be separate. They are relegated to completely different family lines. Throughout the Old Testament history, these roles have been and were meant to stay separate. And so when we see this language in Psalm 110, that Jesus is going to be like this guy, Melchizedek, we should see that David is talking about uh, something categorically different. And, and truly something categorically better than what he was. And if you're lost, this is a big thing. This is a wild thing. Read Hebrews uh, 
basically half of that book is dedicated to this one concept. This is a whole sermon series. I can't go all the way in this. But what I want to highlight is I want to highlight one idea here. Is that if Jesus, if this Psalm 110 Christ is going to be a priest king, I think there is many things we can pull out of this, but there's one thing I want to emphasize, one thing I want to focus on today. See, in the Old Testament, priests did many things, but the main function that they served was to mediate between God and his people. And they do this by going into his presence and offering sacrifices. And so, they would go to God on your behalf, and they'd try to make things right for you. So imagine you or I, we live some 4,000 years ago, and we do something wrong. We break a law, we hurt somebody, we trample our neighbor's crops, whatever it is, there is a consequence to what we've done. There, there is a, a, a price that must be paid, there's a debt that we owe, right? So we, we've done something wrong, and so what we would do is we'd go to the temple, We'd find a priest, and we'd ask him to go into the presence of God for us and offer a sacrifice to make us right with him. Because again, the idea is that when we do something wrong, we have to do something to make it right. There's a price to pay, and the priest is the one who brings our payment to God. And so the priests, they function as the people who make wrongs right, right? And so then when we think about the picture of the priest-king, we start to have this kind of really beautiful image of, of a royal king, a royal priest, who both rules and reconciles. I mean, just think about this. Think about this. How encouraging is it to know that the one who leads us is the one who intercedes for us. And man, how beautiful is it that the one who's going to God on our behalf is our king, the highest ruler in the land. There's a really beautiful picture here of someone filling both roles. And so what we see, to summarize all of this, what we see is that that Jesus is better than David. He's better because he has a better quality than David. He's going to do better things than he did, and he won't do the bad things that David did. And he's also of a better type than David. He's got multiple roles. And so what we have to see here, what we absolutely have to see, is that because Jesus is a better king, it means that his is a better kingdom. Because Jesus is a better king, that means that his is a better kingdom. And our next two sections unpack that idea. Because you know, whenever there is a change of power in any nation in history, anytime there is a change of power, there's always a question that arises. And it's who is going to benefit from this? Who is going to thrive in this new nation? Think about the French revolutions, right? The, the French revolutions are predicated on the idea that the common man will be elevated and the aristocracy will be brought low. But if you have followed the French revolutions, plural, 
you see that basically every time what happens is new people are just put in the position of wealth and power and prominence. See, the idea is that every time there's a change in power, as much as we might hope or promise that things are going to be better for everybody, maybe they are, there's still the few that rise to the top. And even in our own country's history, we see the same thing. Some people rise to the top, are benefited. Some people are kept down. New nations and new rulers mean that new people rise to prominence. But here's the deal. Almost always, it's the same handful of groups of people. It's the wealthy. It's the already powerful it's the well-respected, it's the religious leaders. Every society, these people are going to rise to the top in some way. But what we see from our passage is that in Jesus' kingdom, this is different. In Jesus' kingdom, the person you would expect to be at the top is not. And the person you'd expect to be at the bottom is not. Jesus is showing us that things are sort of upside down in his kingdom. And he's going to do that through two teachings. We're going to look at both of these and see what they say about his kingdom. So flip back to Mark with me. Let's see the first person that Jesus talks about is the scribe. Let's read verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for the pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. This, this is important. Look at verse 38 again. He says, beware the scribes who love these things. This is really important. When we read passages like this, we can think that Jesus doesn't like scribes or something like that. I mean, these people's job was to copy the Bible, and, and it, we can kind of get in this weird space where we think that Jesus hates people who love his word or something. That's not what this is. Jesus, see, see what he is referencing. Jesus hates people, condemns, excuse me, condemns people who like these things. Look at this list. Everything on this list has to do with public recognition or honor. He's saying he's condemning people who love the greetings in the marketplace and, and love the high positions at parties. And, and they love these robes, these long robes. And this is a specific word in the Greek that refers to an article of clothing, a robe, with a specific status to it. So think like priestly robes. There's a status associated to the clothes that you're wearing. And so why does Jesus hate this? Is he, is he against long robes? Is this about Jesus hates when men wear dresses or something? No, I don't think that's what this is. I think what this is, is that Jesus doesn't like when people love the status that comes along with their role, but they are not genuine 
with that role. See, he says that these guys are devouring widows' houses. It, it means that these guys are somehow cheating poor old women out of everything they have. It's this picture of these religious uh, leaders, religious authorities, preying on the weak and the vulnerable. And all the while they're in public making these long prayers like they're so spiritual. Do you see, do you see what Jesus is accusing these guys of? He's saying they're fake. And really he's saying they're the worst kind of fake. They are claiming religious authority and enjoying the status that comes along with it. All the while they're destroying people. And Jesus takes that very seriously. And I think that is very good news for us. And that's good news because if we took a minute to think, we could all come up with a list of people, of religious leaders, politicians, of people who have abused their office and abused the people with their office. If you're a student of history... Or if you own uh, access to the news, you see that it's just a matter of time until the next politician, the next cult leader, the next pastor. There's a breakout story on 60 Minutes of so-and-so has hurt these people. We know this is a pattern, right? And it can feel like this is just the world. This is just how it works. This is just how things have always been and it's how things will always be. But man, Jesus is showing us it's not supposed to be that way. He's saying these leaders are going to face greater condemnation. And again, I think that's good news for us. Because it shows us what things are like in Jesus' kingdom. Think about John 13. It's a scene where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And just consider, consider what's going on here. Jesus, the king of the universe, the creator himself, is here with his friends, and he knows he's going to die the next day. And he stops to wash these guys' nasty, stinky feet in the act of the craziest submission you could imagine. And not only that, but he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a leader in this thing that I'm doing, this is what you're going to do too. This is what it looks like. He says, if I, your Lord, did this to you, then you're going to go on and do the same thing. Friends, I think this is good news for us, good news for us, because it tells us two things. It, takes us, it tells us that God takes this very seriously. He takes this corruption in leadership very seriously. And it also shows us that one day, when King Jesus returns and brings his kingdom, we know that there will be no corruption in that kingdom because Jesus himself will be your king. And I think that's good news. So we've seen the first part. We've seen how the high are brought low. Let's look at the flip side. Let's look at how the low are brought high. 
We'll get our last few verses today, 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And I think this is one of those sections that's fairly easy to understand. But I think it's very hard to believe. Jesus saying here, this woman, she gave the equivalent of 68 cents today to the offering box. He's saying that she gave more than all the rich people that went before her. He's saying that because she had so little, when she gave everything that she had, it was a greater gift than what the rich people gave. And man, we love when Jesus says things like that, don't we? We love these types of scenes. Imagine a Norman Rockwell painting of a woman putting a coin in a box. Beautiful, right? Warms our hearts. But I, I think the truth is, I think the truth is that we don't believe this is true. I want to I stop and challenge us for a minute to think, what if Jesus is really telling the truth here? And of course, we're all good Christians. We believe that Jesus spoke the truth and the things he said are good. We all see the, the, the good ideals here. But man... I know that when I look in my own heart, I have a hard time believing this is true. Because I think deep down, I don't believe it's true. I'll be honest, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my kitchen counter going over my finances, looking at money coming in, money going out. Can't tell you how many times I've been anxious about this. I mean, I can't tell how many times I look at that giving category and I think, what's God going to do with this? What, what good is this amount? Maybe you don't experience this. I hope you don't. But I know that when I consider how much I'm able to give, whether that's money, time, energy, my abilities, man, I kind of ask, what's he going to do with this? Friends, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying this woman's pocket change is worth more than all of the riches put in the box. And this is a reflection of life in Jesus' kingdom. See, in every nation around the world, in every nation throughout history, the wealthy have always been the most important. Wealthy people fund political campaigns. Wealthy people fund charities. The world revolves around those who have. But in Jesus' kingdom, whether you have or not doesn't matter. The question is, what are you willing to give? And more importantly, your heart behind it matters. 
Because friends, this might be a spoiler, Jesus doesn't need your money. You know, the Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our money. So when we give, which we should, the Bible says that we should, we have to see that we are not funding Jesus' work. We're partnering with his work. See, I think about it this way. When I was little, my mom really instilled the importance of Christmas presents, right? And as soon as we could talk, we were buying Christmas presents. And at first it was with her money, but eventually we would spend out of the money that we had gotten throughout the season. And then just imagine this. Little Houston, five years old, and I buy just, by all accounts, the dumbest knickknack from my mom, right? It's ugly, no one wants to look at it. But I spent my own money on it. And so what is she going to do? She's going to cherish it. Or parents with kids, what if you are all together buying a gift for your spouse, right? And you ask your kids to contribute. Is that because you depend on their two or three dollars that they're giving? No, of course not. It's because you want them to join you in what you're doing. And if you have three kids, one kid's got twenty dollars, one kid's got ten dollars, and one kid's got five dollars. Well, man, the kid who's got twenty and he gives ten, that's generous, right? But the kid who has ten and gives eight, it's less money, but that's more generous, isn't it? And then what about the third? He's only got five dollars, but he's given it all. This is the most generous, isn't it? See, the truth is that if in this scenario, you're buying the gift, you don't need that money that the kids are contributing, right? What this is is an opportunity for the kids to put their heart their convictions, to give generously to this. But it's not making or breaking the gift. And so, friends, we have to see that this is what life is like in Jesus' kingdom. You don't have much money? Well, the world might not want anything to do with you. But Jesus does. He thinks that what you're bringing to the table is so precious because, man, he loves you. And he knows what this costs you. And he cherishes what you bring. Do you see, in Jesus' kingdom, those who claw and fight for money, power, honor, these are not the ones who come to prominence. It's the poor, it's the widows, it's the lonely, the broken. Man, who thrives in Jesus' kingdom? It's the ones who in this world are last by all measures. And I don't think I need to tell any of you that that is very unique to King Jesus. And so, these are all nice, right? These are all great ideals. But what are we going to do now? There's a scene in Hamilton where Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton are having a rap battle to talk about politics, which was probably very accurate to the time. And, and 
Uh, Jefferson gives this great line about uh, all of these ideals that the country was founded on and, and lays out why Hamilton's financial plan is going to ruin everything. And Hamilton has this great line in response. He says, Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation. And he goes on to say some other things that I shouldn't say. But the, the point is, I mean, like, we resonate with that, right? The point is, when we approach passages like this, it's like you're sitting there saying, yes, Houston, yes, this is great. I believe in these ideals. This is really sweet. But I live in the real world. And really, it brings us to the tension that we feel when we read passages like this. It's a tension where we believe that, yes, Jesus is the good king and that he's in charge. But also, we know that what, much of what Jesus promised is in the future. We know one day he's going to come back and make all things new. And, and we call this in the church the now and the not yet. Maybe you've heard that before. The now and the not yet. It means that when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, there's a sense in which this is true now. And there's a sense in which this is not true yet. And so if we want to experience Jesus' kingdom, we have to think about it in terms of now and not yet. First, if Jesus is on the throne now, and he is, then we can believe that he's in control. So we want to live within the kingdom's values. You know, Jesus condemned these leaders who fought and clawed for power and honor, but who didn't uh, really believe what they spoke. And so we should take that soberly. And Jesus elevated those who gave generously out of what little they had, and so we should take that uh, seriously. And I know this all seems very straightforward, and kind of it is. But it's important to see why it's worth living this way. And as we, as we kind of come to uh, wrapping up here, I want us to think about this. I think the passages like this, as, as maybe as comforting as they are, passages like this can feel like a greater burden. Like, like maybe you feel like coming away from here, there's something new you have to do, a new command. But I think that this is coming at the passage from the wrong direction. See, I, I think that if we really believe that Jesus is king, then we should see we have the freedom to live this way. Because really, you know, these fake leaders, these fake religious leaders, why do they do what they do? Why would you leverage your religious status for power, money, unless you really believe that's all there is. I mean, if, if these guys really believed what they were preaching, man, it would stand to reason that their lives would look different, right? And why is it that we can have confidence that when we give generously, even out of our poverty, that Jesus is going to use it? And isn't it because we trust what Jesus said? Isn't it because we believe that when he said this widow gave her penny, it was worth more than the riches, then we can be generous. 
In other words, I think that when we consider passages like this, we have to consider that King Jesus actually enables us to live these lives. And it's not because we're afraid of the consequences. It's not because we think we're better than other people. This kind of living flows out of a belief that God really is in control. So we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father? Do we believe that he's in control? What I think we should see is that there is freedom in this belief. And that brings us to the not yet. It's important that we remember there's a day coming when Jesus' kingdom will be fully here. When he will live with us and rule with us. I mean, there's a day coming when we won't have to worry about corrupt leaders anymore. There's a day coming when there won't be poverty. And there's a day coming when we won't just have to trust that God is going to take care of us because we're going to see him face to face and we'll experience it. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. It gives me hope that all of this stuff that we're going through is not for nothing, that it's leading somewhere. It gives me hope that as hard as things are now, as as dark as the world is now, there's a day coming when we will see by the light of Jesus. And on that day, man, we're going to welcome King Jesus with singing and praise, and we're going to gather around his table, and we're going to have the party to end all parties. And friends, we can live like Jesus is king now because he is king now. And we can have hope that there's a day coming when we'll see him face to face and everything is going to be set right. I want to end with this. If you don't know King Jesus, if you've never accepted him as your king and savior, I want to urge you to consider. Because the truth is it doesn't matter who you are. Corrupt politician, drug addict, hypocrite, you are welcome. In the, the message version of the book of Hebrews, it says this. So, friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God, into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. And the curtain into God's presence was his own body. And it doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, Jesus has made a way for you to come to God. So come, find somebody, ask some questions, get to know Jesus more. And for those of us who do know him as king, I also want to turn your attention to that passage in Hebrews. Let's also remember that because Jesus is our great priest king, 
we can, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place because Jesus has cleared the way. So let's go to him now in prayer and then shortly after at the table. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all that you give us. I thank you for your word. I just pray, Lord, that uh, in all the ways that I've fallen short today, that you would fill in those gaps, all the things that I said extra, you would leave to the side, and that each of us could walk away from here having had an experience with you and your glory, and that we could believe that you are the good king, Jesus, and that yours is the better kingdom, and that we could live in that kingdom life now and live full of hope that there's a day coming when we'll see you face to face. We love you and we thank you for all that you give us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.